Well, good morning. I'm Dave Bianchin. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I'm delighted to be with you this morning as we begin this wonderful new sermon series. I also especially want to thank you for giving up a couple more hours of the 85 hours of Super Bowl pregame show that are going on today. You're only going to have about seven more hours to watch by the time you get home, but thanks so much for being here for that. As has been mentioned, we're starting a new sermon series today called What to Bring to Worship. And we're not talking about how we dress or what service we come to. We're talking about the issue of our hearts. And it's a really, really good question because I think that, that many of us wake up on a Sunday morning and we think, I want to get to worship, got to get to worship. What do I need to do to get to worship? And we take a shower and we dress in our clothes and we get in the car and if we're gathering kids, we make sure they've done all the same thing. And we, we come together in the worship and it's great to be here, but have we prepared ourselves have we thought in our minds of why we're here and what we're here to do? When we think about what we bring to worship, I think there's a tendency to look back in terms of how we were raised. Some of us were raised in particular denominations, and those denominations have their certain ways of doing worship. I grew up Presbyterian. It was always robes and, and hymn books and bulletins and a lot of participation, and that was great. Some of you were raised Catholic, and so you were raised in a little different way of worshiping. Some of you have no church background at all, and so you've been learning as you go, and you've been developing your own sense of things. We all eventually come up with what I would call liturgical sensibilities. We, we know what we like, we're pretty sure what we don't like, and we try to come to a service that does something to enrich our souls. Musical styles are another thing, aren't they? I mean, we're, some of us are here because we like the music we've done this morning, and gosh, I love our praise band and the work they do. I also love our choir and how they help us out. But the point is that no matter what background we're from, what style we like, what sensibilities we bring, in any one of those contexts, we can worship God in spirit and in truth. So the real question that comes forth then is, What's going on in my heart? What are my expectations today in coming to worship? And I want to say that it's really an important issue because worship is not a neutral issue for us as Christians. Worship is at the very center of what we believe about God, what we believe about, about discipleship, how we live out our lives, how we make our priorities, how we give. All of those things find their foundation in the issue of how we worship. And one of the things that I think is important to remember is that it's not a neutral issue. I mean, yes, we can do all of the other things um, and it doesn't really matter, but worship can be true or false. Worship can be directionally correct or wrong. Worship can be engaged in with the right attitude or with the wrong attitude or sometimes perhaps you're just waking up this morning with no attitude at all. We used to say about our daughter, who's a night person, that no matter what time she gets up in the morning, she wakes up at about 10.30. I hope you're following along here this morning and, and getting there. And you know, believers throughout all the centuries have struggled with this issue. They've debated with what does it mean to worship? How do we worship correctly? If you read through the Old Testament, it is so clear how God praises the nation of Israel when they're worshiping well and frankly condemns them, challenges them, chastises them when they're not worshiping God correctly. So we find situations in which believers are, are drawn to see God when they're distracted from God. And the question is then, what is our worship to be? 
Throughout the centuries, Christians in a variety of cultures and places have put together what we call creeds or confessions. And they're not, they're not personal confessions of faith, but they're declarations of what we believe. The most well-known, uh, one of the most well-known, of course, is the Apostles' Creed, which was trying to synthesize just the very basics of the Christian faith in a world that needed to hear them. Most people weren't gonna read through the whole New Testament, so the Apostles' Creed helped them come to some definition. One of the most dramatic of the creeds is the, um, the Barman Declaration, which was developed in Nazi Germany uh, right before World War II, in which people were declaring that God is God and not national socialism. But one of the confessions of faith that was developed in the 1600s was called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It was developed in Britain. British, or English, and Scottish scholars put it together. And it was a question and answer declaration of faith. And the very first question was, what is the chief end of man? Or as we would say today, what is the chief end of humankind? And the answer of that is, the chief end of humankind is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's a benchmark statement about what we bring to worship, or ideally, what we bring to worship. I'd like to look for a few moments this morning at how we can get worship wrong to come to some contrast in that, and then finish up with the ways we can get worship right. There are a lot of ways we can get worship wrong, aren't there? But one of the first ways we can get worship wrong is by worshiping false gods. Now this sounds kind of confrontational because do we worship false gods? Read through the Old Testament and look at what happened after God brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of their bondage, parted the Red Sea, and led them out away from there to a place where they could look toward the promised land. Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments from God, and what do the people do? They pool their jewelry together, they melt it down, and they make a calf. And they start to worship the golden calf. Not, not a good thing. They get to the promised land, and they find pagan people worshiping there with their altars to gods such as Baal, and the people of Israel find themselves descending into that type of worship as well. And we find other times then where in exile, the Babylonian deities become ones that are object of worship. Now all of these false gods are created by cultures. But it's a common issue that we are tempted away from worshiping the living God in so many ways to find gods that have been created that fit our perspectives, that fit our priorities, that fit our preferences, usually because they're easier than giving our lives up to the living God. In the first chapter of the Apostle Paul's great letter to the Roman church, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful treatise on faith. Paul is commenting on that, both looking back at the Old Testament and in the condition in Rome, and he says this, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. The the word he uses is that, lie. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. Amen. Now let's step back away from the pagan gods of yesteryear and ask ourselves the question, what about now? And I would submit to you, this is a huge issue in our time because of the things that we make and the things that we love, and the things that we end up serving. And there are all kinds of lies going around our culture that it's okay. It's okay to, to, to worship these other things. It's no problem. I mean, God really doesn't care if you're worshiping the almighty dollar, 
or the house that you've bought or the new car that you want to buy or the education that you want for yourself or your children or the way you want to look or the way you want to dress, that God really doesn't care. And what we end up with in these situations is a culture filled with what I would call ungrounded spirituality. How many people do we talk to who say, well, I'm spiritual, but it's not really connected. If you're really going to be spiritual, you need an object of worship. And if that object is not the living God, then it's a false God. And it permeates our culture, and it permeates our lives, and we are slammed with it all the time, through advertising, through things popping up on our smartphones, and it affects our worship because we're drawn in our hearts to these things. So a question to ask is, as I look at the things in my life, do they draw me to them, or are they things I can use, I can appreciate, I can leave alone? Because all of these can be used for the good as well, but they can be used wrongly. So false gods are a problem. They are oppositional to our faith. The second way we can get worship wrong is what I'll call incomplete perspectives. We tend to come to worship for a number of different reasons, and not all of them are the right ones. Now, not all of them are wrong in themselves, but in their incompleteness, they draw us away or they point us away or they push us away from worshiping the living God. Let me give you three examples, three images. Some people come to church and see it as a filling station. They wanna to come to, work, to worship for what they can get out of it. I want my input for the week. I wanna be encouraged so that I can go live my life during the week. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But when we're looking at worship just as a filling station, what we're saying is, how can I be filled? That's the primary issue. How am I filled? It's very utilitarian, isn't it? because it's getting something for ourselves. And there's nothing, again, completely wrong with that, but it's incomplete if that's the whole reason we're here. Second image is that of the classroom. We come here to understand the Bible better and to learn something new. Well, can you say there's something wrong with that? Well, no, because we want to grow in our knowledge of what the Bible says. But it can become an academic type of exercise in which we, we learn something new and we think, well, that's good. Now I've got more biblical knowledge and that's fine. But if our knowledge does not translate into our worship and into our service, then that becomes an incomplete perspective as well. A third way we do this is coming together with, with what I would call the fellowship gathering. We wanna connect with our brothers and sisters. We wanna see other Christians. We wanna catch up with people that we know, perhaps in our small group or folks we're in a classroom with or something like that. And that's really a wonderful thing to be in fellowship. The Bible encourages that. It encourages us to fellowship with other believers. But what happens when we come primarily for that is that we ignore other people who are here in our midst. And we ignore God himself. So the Bible says, yes, be filled in worship. Be filled with the knowledge of God. Grow in our knowledge of what scripture says. Fellowship with and bear one another's burdens. Those are all wonderful things, but they're only a partial understanding of what worship is. Third way we can get worship false is what I'll just call a self-focus. And this is really the way we are oriented primarily toward ourselves rather than the living God. And this is our text for the morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 
Paul begins talking to the church in Corinth about their worship, particularly how they're gathering together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion as we call it many times today. And he says to them this in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. You do more harm than good. Now the context in Corinth is, Corinth is a crossroads of places. There are many different cultures there. Commerce comes in and out of there. It's one of these hubs of people from all kinds of different cultures gathered in one place. The church is very young in its life together. And unlike wonderful worship houses like we have here today and it's are littered across our country, most of the churches in that time and place were house churches. And people would gather and they would have a fellowship meal together before they went to celebrate the Lord's Supper and worship together. And the problem is that their worship was causing more harm than good because they brought their divisions into the worship place instead of their commonality in Jesus Christ. And so people were coming in with different economic means, different cultural backgrounds, different priorities, and frankly, different egos. We find that happening all all throughout our lives as well as others. And so Paul goes on to say, for in the first place when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So if the church can't find its unity in worship, if it can't come together because we are so focused on what we get out of it and what we want to have right now, our worship isn't doing any good because it's certainly not glorifying God. And it's really not helping us because we bring in the baggage that we have from the culture and unless it's transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's something we just continue to live with wrongly. Paul's very hard on the church because of that. Evelyn Underhill was a a great Christian writer of yesteryear and she brings an image of the ocean to our worship. And she says that the angels sometimes look down from heaven. As they see our worship, it looks to them like a muddy puddle, that it's like when the the ocean goes out and it's at low tide, and there on the beach is litter and rotting things, the water is, is not good, and then when the wave of the living waters comes in, it washes those things away, and the church then is able in its cleansing to truly begin to worship God. So worship has a cleansing effect upon us as we let the living waters of Jesus wash away those parts of our lives. Frank Accardi takes that image in a different way, and he says, the church is in many ways like a rowboat, and the rowboat's on the shore also at low tide. If you try to move that rowboat when it's sitting on the sand, it's gonna be very, very difficult to move. But again, when the tide comes in and lifts it up, then the boat can be steered wherever we want, And the church, like that, when we're worshiping correctly, is able to move where God wants us to go. So let me come back to an original question that we brought out this morning. What do we want to get out of worship today? 
Did we wake up thinking about how we would please God today? Or did we wake up thinking about how we might be blessed today? There's incredible transforming power in worship when we worship God in spirit and in truth. And like the rowboat on the sand, we are stuck if we're only in the formalities of what we do and when we do it. One of the last things Paul wrote, it was his letter to his uh, young mentor, Timothy, and he said, the problem with many people is they hold to a form of godliness, but they deny its power. So how we understand the world, how we make decisions, how we relate to others is grounded in and affected by our worship. I grew up in Southern California on a farm, small farm, we did orchard farming, we farmed avocados, it's a great, great place to grow up. Um, one of the fun things about growing up on a farm is you've got farm machinery and you can drive it all around your property even if you don't have a driver's license. So at an early age I was able to take the tractor and it's not the big tractors of the Midwest but just a small one. And I was able to tootle around the ranch with, um, with the tractor. It was really fun to have that sense of power and movement. You know, I could go there and, and my friends would come and we'd, we'd uh, roll all around the property with that. And it was really fun. So when I was able to get my driver's license, I already had a little sense of kind of the thrill of being able to drive. So I got my driver's license about five minutes after I turned 16 because I was so eager to be able to go ahead and drive. Now the town I grew up in was really big on two things high school football, and cars. And every adolescent and young adult was really big on how their car looked and how it performed, and so it was kind of a status thing in town. So it was really cool to get my driver's license and to begin to learn to drive and be part of that kind of in crowd with our culture. You know, when you learn how to drive, you've got to really learn to do three things. The first is the mechanics. You need to know where the key is, you need to know how to turn it, how to use the steering wheel, which is the gas pedal, which is the brake, which is the clutch, if you had that as well. How I do the turn signals, how you do the wipers, when to turn the lights on. Those are the mechanics of driving. You need to learn how to do that. The second thing you need to learn how to do is have an awareness of the things around you. An awareness of the speed limit, an awareness of the stop sign coming up, an awareness of people walking around, how close the curb is so you don't roll over that, where you're in your lane, and you learn to judge distance out of this sense of awareness in order to drive safely. And as well as mechanics and awareness, you need to learn a sense of direction. For me to get here to there, I need to turn right here, I need to turn left there, I need to do it in such a way that it's safe for other people. And I learned how to drive and I loved it and I was a pretty good driver, I'd like to say, and it was a really wonderful thing. And then in the summer of 1997, our family did what's called a pulpit exchange and we went to Scotland for the summer. And so we moved there and we, we traded houses and we traded churches and we traded cars with a wonderful um, family named Douglas and Christine Cranston and they spent the time in Downers Grove at our place preaching in our church and we were there. But I had to drive in Scotland. And I don't know if you're aware of this but in Scotland they're on, I'll say, the other side of the road. So you would get in the car like you would normally would and the steering wheel's over here. It's not where I'm sitting. So I, I have to get in the car in the other area. There's a sense that, that the mechanics are different. The, fortunately, the pedals were in the same place. But you had to be able to, to drive the car in a different way. Your awareness was different because in Scotland, the roads are very narrow. 
and there's a thousand-year-old stone wall about an inch and a half off the side of the road, and you know that you're going to lose if you go off the side of the road. There's no shoulder there. Plus, your awareness is different because you're seeing that out of your left eye rather than your right. So your awareness has to grow. And direction, um, you ever driven in a roundabout? I've driven around and around and around about. And it was really a fun experience, and we did well, although the first day I went to drive, Julie said, well, should we all go with you? And I said, no, if I'm going to get killed, I don't want to take the rest of you with me. So I went out and did it, did it myself, and I didn't make too many mistakes that summer, didn't get in any accidents. I upset a couple people doing the wrong thing in roundabouts and, and turning right into the wrong lane or left into the wrong lane, but people were very gracious with me. And the point of all this is that I knew the mechanics of driving, but my awareness needed to change and my direction was different because you can do all the mechanics right but be driving in the wrong lane. You can do all the stuff you're supposed to do but if you don't have your awareness growing into what, how you're supposed to do it and how you're supposed to get to your destination, you're in real trouble. So we can get worship wrong with the filling station, the classroom, and the self-focus, because we can be doing all of those mechanics right, but our heart is not pointed in the right direction. We are driving, if you will, we are worshiping, if you will, in the wrong lane. So how do we get worship right? Let me begin by saying there is huge grace in this. God understands that we are sinful human beings, we are incomplete in the things that we can do, and God loves us anyway. So one of my mentors used to say, his slogan was, practice makes better, not perfect. So we want to think about how we can get worship right and move toward that as a discipline and as a joy in our daily lives. First of all, worship is meant to be directed to the Lord. It's all about direction. It's all about how, who we are worshiping toward. We are not worshiping ourselves. We're not worshiping other people in this room. And we need a new image of worship because we're very used to coming in and sitting here and watching people lead in the praise band and watching preachers like me preach, and, and we clap at songs and it's wonderful, but we need a new image of what it means to worship. There was an old theologian by the name of Soren Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard, he was from Denmark, and he'd addressed this situation of role, conf role confusion in worship many, many years ago. So Kierkegaard wrote this. We think of people in the pew, in the chairs, as the audience. And we think of the people up front as performers. And we think of God as the prompter. So in other words, we, we think that God is, is up here kind of moving things around, uh, having the people who are up front performing leading worship and giving it to each of us in the pews. The truth, however, Kierkegaard says, is that the people in the pew, it is the people in the pew who are the most significant performers. Those of us up front are mostly prompters, and the awesome creator of the universe is the audience. Now, if we had time today, I would have all of you get up and come up here, and we would imagine God sitting right there, and we would wait for his applause. Because that's what's happening in worship. We are giving to God our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength, and we're asking God, to say well done. So if the applause is coming from any direction, we want it to come from the one who is watching us, to say to us well done, to say to us good perspective, great thankfulness, sacrificial obedience. 
And so the first thing we need is not to come here for how we're gonna be filled, how we learn, how we fellowship. We need to bring to worship a passion for hearing the applause of heaven. By the way we sing to God, the way we pray toward God, the way we praise him, the ways we bear witness, the ways we listen to the word, the ways we serve God, our highest priority should be to bring a smile to the face of our Lord and Savior. Because we wanna hear from God more than anyone else. Worship means coming here to please God. Worship is also meant to be devoted to the Lord. Now these seem like simple things, I understand that, and and you may not be learning anything new today from me on this, but it's our sense of direction and awareness. We're great on the mechanics. Even those of you who think you can't sing very well, you're making a joyful noise to the Lord, that's enough. But it's the direction and the awareness of our hearts. And true worship is devoted to God, not to what I can get out of it, but to blessing and praising the living God. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, brothers and sisters, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Listen to what he covers in that. There's an appeal to us. It's important, our attitude of worship, to present to God our bodies, our our minds and our hearts to the living God which is our acceptable worship in order to please him. The great um, commandment says that we're called to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind and strength. And we do that by presenting ourselves to him and looking for his pleasure in it. To grow not so much in terms of what we get out of it, but to grow in a sense of awe and majesty for the living God. So the question should be not how can God bless me this morning? The question is, how can I bless the Lord this morning? I want you to join with me in reading together a few verses from Psalm 103, and we're actually going to do it twice, because I want us to, to let our hearts wash over these words, and to notice that the Psalm recognizes what God does for us, but it focuses on how we are called to bless the Lord. Would you join with me, please? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives you with all, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Let's do that again. Can we get this back up? Thank you. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. It's bless the Lord, O my soul. So God is the object of our worship as we praise him for who he is. Yes, we will thank him for what he has done for us. 
but we have to do that after we praise him for who he is. I want to encourage you to be diligent in your Bible reading, not from the classroom aspect, but so that you and I may grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and to grow in our sense of awe and wonder at the majesty of him who created the world, who has redeemed us, who sustains us, who is our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace. Because we have so much to learn about who God is. Many years ago, I was called by a family I didn't know in order to prepare for doing a funeral for an older fellow who had not died yet. And they didn't have a church in the area, and they wanted me to come by and meet him and get to know his story so that when I did the funeral, it could be a more personal event, which is very, very important to me as well. So I welcomed the call. So I went over and I met the family, wonderful, gracious people, and I met the man who was on his deathbed. He had been raised in Brazil, and as I looked upon him, I thought, well, I'm sure he's a wonderful guy, but there's this old guy, and he's about to go and meet his maker. And I didn't learn very much about him that day, but I loved the family, and, and I was glad for them to make that invitation. He passed away just a few weeks later after that, and I came back to the house in order to plan for the funeral, and I learned some things about him. Now, we do this with all kinds of people, don't we? We, we come with a sense of, I look at someone, and I think, well, you know, there's, there's a person who looks like this, or who dresses like this, or who acts like this, and, and we really only know about that much of who they are. And it turns out that this this older fellow who had been raised in Brazil was an engineer who had helped design a dam for a lake that brought electricity to about half of Brazil that hadn't had electricity before. As well as that, he was a political revolutionary who worked for freedom for the Brazilian people and he was a world-ranked chess player. And so as I came there for that second meeting, my sense of who he was went from here to hear, to hear, to hear. As I got to know him better, my sense of him, I was so impressed by what he had done with his life. And friends, as we give our hearts to worship and to blessing the Lord, as we continue to get to know him better in the words of scripture, and yes, as we fellowship with one another, I hope our knowledge of God continues to grow and grow and grow. And our sense of awe and wonder at the majestic God of heaven comes to us in such a way that we can truly worship him. If you don't have one yet already, you're going to be given on the way out today a a bookmark, and it's about our sermon series theme, What to Bring to Worship. But in it, you'll find uh, for each week both the text that we have studied and the theme of the week and an application question. So the theme today is a passion for hearing the applause of heaven. We want to hear God clapping for us. The application for this week is to do something that glorifies God. I want to encourage you to get one, and and rather than leaving it in your Bible, put it in your pocket or put it in your purse this week. And think this week how in between these worship services, as you're going about your daily life, with the people you come in contact with, and the opportunities that God gives you to influence people, how you and I can glorify God. And as God sits and watches us, not from the sanctuary, but from the heavenly throne, that we would hear and listen for the applause of heaven because of the God who loves us and who we love as well. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are 
so grateful for your grace and mercy and love in our lives. Uh, we are in awe that you would love us the way you do, that you would come for us in Jesus Christ, and that you would give us the opportunity to serve you and to bless you. So Lord, this week, fill us with your spirit and lead us to have a passion for your applause. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.